And as they are going, if you would join me in your Bibles in John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And I'll begin reading. You can follow along. Verse 9 down through verse 21. Nicodemus said to Jesus, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought to God. Let's pray together before we begin. Our Father, we do ask you that you would supply your church with what is needed this morning. We appeal to you knowing your grace and your mercy and your care for your people. So we ask that you would minister to us as you would be willing through your spirit, give to us hearts that are attentive and yielding to your way. We pray that you will help us to block out the distractions of the world and our lives around us and that we will focus on the glory of Christ this morning and his gospel. Help us to be enriched by these things as your church. Help us to be emboldened by these things as we are your witnesses, your voice. And I pray, Father, that you will cause us to be effective in the preaching of your word because we've gathered together this morning under the authority of Scripture and in the teaching of your gospel as we see here in John chapter 3. Give to me the ability to speak clearly and carefully on these things, but all of us that we'd be granted by our God to have hearts that are soft to the authority of God's word in our lives. Father, thank you for the ministry that you give to us to share the light of Christ in our neighborhoods, in our families, our homes, in our workplaces, in our communities. We are grateful for the testimony of Elise as she goes out to Poland and later to Alaska. And we again pray for your blessing and care on her as she goes. Cause her to be a faithful and an effective witness and those that she joins with as well. That your name would be honored. The lost will be stirred to faith in Christ. And in all things, Jesus Christ will be lifted up. And we pray that for ourselves this morning as well. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if I could put in another plug for Sunday school, it is not just for children. Um, I've really enjoyed the adult Sunday school class that Tim has been leading us through on a healthy church, and I've been amazed at how those lessons each Sunday morning have paralleled what I preach on later, and I haven't joined with Tim to prepare this, but this morning it was on the gospel, and guess where we're picking up this morning in our study of John 3? It is John 3.16. And I found just what Jonathan Lehman was sharing in the Sunday school hour during that lesson is, is very much paralleling and supporting and declaring the same things that you and I are going to be looking at in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. We left, last, left our study of John 3 two weeks ago with Nicodemus expressing his uncertainty about what Jesus had just taught him on regeneration, the necessary regeneration. It, is the thing that Jesus said you must have. You must be born again. And as Jesus walked Nicodemus through that doctrine of regeneration, his response comes in verse 9. How can these things be? 
Now that may appear to us to be an innocent question of a man who is seeking Jesus. But Jesus later in verse 10, 11, and 12 shows that is not the case at all. This man, like all others prior to Christ, had a hardened heart of unbelief. And part of the graciousness of the Savior to this man Nicodemus is that Jesus was prepared to expose that heart. And so in verse 10, Jesus said to Nicodemus, your heart is that of un not understanding the Scriptures. Here you are, a teacher of Israel, a master in the Word of God, and yet you don't understand the Gospel. And verse 11, he said, neither do you accept me as a fulfillment of the Gospel, as the Messiah, even though that has been testified to you and the other Pharisees and the other rulers there in Jerusalem, you have not accepted me. And hence, verse 12, nor have you believed. He was exposing a heart of unbelief in Nicodemus. Now, I referred to that as a hesitation because I do believe that later on, Nicodemus did become a follower of Christ. And we see that more in John chapter 19. But even as Nicodemus is mentioned in John 7, there's a hesitation on his part. He seems to, to be open to what Jesus has to say but hasn't fully committed himself to it. So in the graciousness of God, Jesus Christ is patiently walking this man through the understanding that he must have, even though this man is set in disbelief. And Jesus had some hard things to say to Nicodemus in regard to his own hardened heart of unbelief. But again, this is evidence of God's grace, a willingness not just to share the rosy things of the gospel, but to share the harder things that man must hear from God himself in regard to our salvation. Remember Jesus, it was said by John in chapter 1, came to this world full of grace and what? Truth. And it's by God's grace, by Christ's grace, that he opens up the truth to Nicodemus. And in verse 11, Jesus presents Nicodemus with his own self-identification as the son of man. Yet at the same time, he says to Nicodemus, I'm the one that descended. I will ascend again, identifying himself as the son of God. And then verse 14 and 15, showing to Nicodemus something about salvation and the kingdom of God he had never understood before. That as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. And I believe this reference here in verse 11, 12, 13, and 14 is a picture that stuck with Nicodemus. So that on the day when Christ was lifted up, do you not suppose that this reference, this conversation came flooding back into Nicodemus' mind and perhaps that was the moment of salvation for Nicodemus. In our study this morning, the text picks up from the conversation of Jesus with Nicodemus to add more gospel truth to clarify what Nicodemus did not understand, but what he must know if he or any other should be saved. It would have been hard for Nicodemus to hear what Jesus had to say up to this point through verse 15 because it went against everything that this man held sacred. Unfortunately, what Nicodemus held sacred was his own righteousness and his own ability to be right with God. So from verse 16 to verse 21, the text now defines salvation by faith and non-salvation by disbelief. And Nicodemus and his Pharisee friends have just been identified as those unbelievers. It needs to be said here at this point that many scholars do not believe that Jesus is speaking the words in verse 16 to verse 21, even though those words are in red letters in most of your Bibles. Most scholars believe that those are the words of the Apostle John. Throughout John's Gospel, John adds his own meditations and thoughts. And if you go to the original manuscripts, in fairness to that belief, there is no red lettering. There are no punctuation marks, so there's no indication where the conversation or the direct words of Jesus ended, and John picks up again with his gospel narrative. So even if we look at these words, verse 16 to verse 21, as the words of Christ, that is merely our presumption. We believe that they are the words of Jesus. 
if we see those words as not red letter, but black, and John is the one speaking. We presume that that is John writing. In either case, it is the Spirit of Jesus Christ that is driving the Apostle John to write this gospel narrative. And therefore, in either way we look at it, it's the Word of Christ. It is the Word of Christ. So we don't really know where Jesus stopped speaking and where John continues. It does appear quite possible that John is the inspired author of verses 16 to 21. And if this is the case, Nicodemus may not have heard these exact words, or perhaps John heard Jesus teach them, and he's now put them in his own words. Whatever the case, this is gospel truth that answers the uncertainty of Nicodemus and any other like him. And as a gospel-believing, gospel-preaching church, how important then are these words to you and I? Because it's our commission to go outside these walls and to be light and to share light and to speak light. And we have to speak the truth in regard to the gospel. And therefore, I look at verses 16 to verse 21 as the presentation of the gospel. This is where the words of Christ are presented. The gospel of Christ is presented. Scripture addresses Nicodemus's failure to believe and gives to you and I a gospel presentation as a response. It's filling in the blanks for understanding. Jesus in verse 14 and 15 has just declared himself as the Son of Man that like the serpent will be lifted up, that all who look to him and believe will be saved. Verse 16 then is a perfect place to pick up that conversation of the gospel. This gospel presentation has both the message of love and hope through faith, but also the message of judgment and condemnation through unbelief. Both are essential to the preaching of the gospel. And we are not faithful to the gospel unless both are articulated. Both the judgment of God and the love, the hope that we have by faith in Christ Jesus. To be sure, Jesus is the master evangelist. So he knows what's on the heart of man. And we saw that, chapter 2 and verse 25. And therefore, he knows exactly what needs to be said at this point to all who are reading the story of Nicodemus and have read the account or the doctrine of regeneration. It's the Spirit of God that has placed this valuable text before us so that we know the gospel, we're able to articulate the gospel, to embrace the gospel by faith. We might think that Scripture could be more gracious in this word on believers and unbelievers, because in context, Nicodemus may be on the verge of believing, but Jesus well understood that Nicodemus and his fellow religious rulers had hearts that were hardened in unbelief and in self-righteousness. So Jesus here graciously speaks gospel truth. Even if he's speaking through the Apostle John, Jesus is graciously speaking the truth that needs to be heard. Nicodemus needed to have his heart exposed and laid bare as Jesus does in verses 10 to 12. He also needed to have a clear understanding of salvation by faith alone in the bloody sacrifice of Messiah as is shown in verses 13, 14, and 15. And in the same way, all sinners need to understand the condemnation of God against all unbelief in mankind, even the unbelief of the most religious men as we are reading here in John 3. But also to hear the hope that is found in Christ because of God's love. And this is where we're going to start our study this morning. It's in this very direct and confrontational gospel presentation that we see the greatest expression of God's grace, His unmerited favor, because in reality, sinful men don't deserve to hear this message. Sinful men have not earned the right to hear this gospel presentation. God is pouring out His grace to us in giving us this truth. It is the unmerited favor of God that will tell us the hard truth about salvation in Christ by faith. It is the grace of God that will also warn men what it means to reject His redeeming love in disbelief. And you'll notice in our text that God now becomes the central figure. And we focus on Him as the one who appoints 
salvation and who appoints judgment. Beginning with why God has provided salvation. John 3.16, God's love. That's the focus here. God's love. Immediately following the words of Christ to Nicodemus, which spoke of saving faith, verse 16 picks up with this explanation. For God so loved the world. Look back at the previous two verses. Even as the serpent's lifted up, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that all who would believe, who would look and believe on the Savior sent by God, would have eternal life. For God so loved the world. Why was this plan of redemption laid out? It was not because Jesus came to the rescue of mankind because God is angry with man. God was angry with man. But it is God in his love that has instituted this plan. Jesus isn't rescuing us from an angry, grumpy old God in heaven. It's God in his love that has put, put this plan into motion, and he's done so from before the foundations of the world were even laid. And this introduces us to what must be believed, what must be the target of our faith that would grant sinful man eternal life. Verse 15 says, that target of our faith is Christ. It is Jesus, the Son of Man, that was lifted up. We must believe in the only begotten Son of God to have eternal life. But then notice that God's love for the world is where this conversation takes us. And again, there have been times that you and I have all heard discussions of God being presented as this angry, stern one who Jesus has got to rescue us from. Well, let's be clear. The wrath of God is against man on account of his sins. But it's this God's wrath at the same time that God loves that he has provided this redemption. Yet here we see that it is God's love for his creation that caused him to give his son as a savior. These are some truths of God's love that we need to learn from John 3.16. And I've noted them in your bulletin or your highlight, your note sheet. I put more blanks in just to keep you awake and alert. So you get to fill those in. The first is the measure of his love. The measure of his love. And you will notice the measure of his love focuses on the cross himself. First, we see how God's great love for the world is in that he would give his son as a sacrifice for sinners. Now, where this verse begins, for God so loved, that little word so is packed with importance for us. One scholar translates the meaning here in this way. For God loved in such an infinite degree. For God so loved in this way, in other words, or in such a transcendently glorious manner. This is the way in which God loved. By sending His Son. The focus on the cross. This comes to full light when we read that God loved to the extent that He would give His own Son. It is doubtful that as popular and well-known as John 3.16 is, even among unbelievers that unbelievers will understand the measure of God's love as it's being articulated here. Everybody knows, almost everybody knows, John 3.16. And we love to hover around that passage that says, for God so loved the world. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that lovely? And the assumption to many is that God loved us because we were lovable. And yet that is not the message of the gospel. The focus for unsaved people will be to simply hear God is love. And from that point, they will put their own spin on what love is or what a loving God should be or what a loving God should do. Further, many will claim that this God of love will certainly include them in his salvation regardless of what they believe or don't believe because God is love. We may all believe a little bit differently. He won't reject me just because I don't pay attention to the gospel. But of course, this would completely miss the meaning of the verse and certainly the overall context. Our text is quite specific. It is a love that gave his son and only his son for the salvation of men's souls. No other savior is provided. No other savior is acceptable. No other religion is adequate 
God's love is therefore not an all-inclusive commodity. It is experienced exclusively through His Son, Jesus Christ. But this is also what makes His love so rich and amazing, that He would give to this world His only begotten Son to come in among men, sinful men, and He would suffer and die to bear the shame of our sin, to become the curse of sin on our behalf, That is love beyond our comprehension. Paul understood this when he wrote to the church in Ephesus. And I'd like you to go there in Ephesians chapter 3. By the way, I put the scriptures, the the subtext on your notes sheet so that you can get there ahead of me. That way I don't have to spend a lot of time waiting for you to turn your pages. It's there before you. This is a passage that we need to be familiar with. Paul's heart for the Ephesian church. He prays for them that they would know greater the love of God in a greater way, in a more magnificent way. In verses 18 and 19 of Ephesians 3, Paul's passion that they would more fully be able to comprehend with all the saints. Notice what is the breadth and length and height and depth. To know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to all the fullness of God. That's the measure of God's love. The breadth of it, the height of it, the depth of it. The knowledge of God's love in Christ surpasses our knowledge now of that love, meaning it goes well beyond our limited human understanding. Yet we should long for and desire to comprehend more of the expanse of this love. That we would be filled with all the fullness of God. It is not enough to say that God is love. Scripture, like Ephesians 3, like John 3.16, challenges us to know the measure of that love, to know its breadth, its length, its height, its depth. The measure of God's love, the immenseness, the majesty is seen in what He did for us, what He gave to us. The measure of God's love comes into fuller view when we learn from our text that God loved the world of sinful men. And it brings us to the next aspect of God's love, the object of His love, which is the world. And this highlights even further the measure, the immensity of God's love, that He would love us. In context, this does not mean the planet Earth. Because in the very next verse, the world that is discussed here is worthy of judgment on account of sin. The planet didn't sin, but the world of mankind did. The world of mankind, it says, is worthy of God's judgment, as our text shows. Nor is Jesus referring to all of creation in the world. The plants, the animals, the fish, the birds. Because it's out of this world, those who believe who will be saved. It is clear that Jesus, in these words, or John the Apostle is articulating that God's love is towards the the humanity of this world. So we're not talking about the animal kingdom. We're not talking about plants. We're not talking about the planet itself. It is most obvious to our understanding that this world is a reference to the world of humanity. And that would have troubled Nicodemus and his Pharisee friends. Because this kind of love was a little bit foreign to them. This is a love that is speaking more globally, not just Jewishly. And Nicodemus and the Pharisees and the rulers, they would have seen God as a God that loved Israel. He loves us as a Jewish people. But when God sent His only Son out of His love for the world, the declaration here is a fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham. That through him and his family, He would bless all the nations of the earth. God's saving love was always intended to be poured out on every tribe and tongue and nation. And to further clarify, what God loves here is not an evil species or a sinful creation in this sense. He does not love that man is who he is in his sin. But he loves man in spite of his sin. God does not love the world because the world is lovable. God loves the world because He, God, is love. 
He loves the world of sinful man in spite of his sins. And this is proved by what his love came to accomplish. That is to save us out of the judgment that we deserve because of our sin. He sent Jesus to rescue sinners from the bondage of sin. And this necessarily does away with the idea that God is so loving that he's okay with our defilements and our sinful choices. He's okay with us if we just want to live life on our own terms. Because the reality is that Jesus Christ was sent by God out of his love for the world, not because he was content with us, but because he had every intention of changing us, transforming us, delivering us out from under the bondage of sin. So often what comes in discussions of God's love and grace is a kind of tolerance in God for man's defects and man's individualities as if he, God, is just not all that concerned with how men choose to live. In Sunday school today, the church was notified that or the church was identified today as often a place where people, or where we meet people where they're at. That was the expression in the note sheet, where the church is to meet people where they're at. Well, that's only half the truth. Yes, we do meet sinners with the gospel where they're at. But the intention of the gospel, the intention of the church, is that we repent and by faith be saved by that gospel, be transformed by that gospel, be delivered out of sin by that gospel. I marvel today at what we hear from Christian churches who are wrestling with what kinds of sinful choices they believe God is going to be okay with. The past couple of months, the Methodist church right now is a great upheaval over sexual preferences and who's going to fill the pulpit as if God's word is almost a secondary issue. It's not surprising that the world around us wants a God that is not all that particular about how we choose sinful lives. But when the so-called church seems confused on those issues, it only means that they have not understood the basic gospel message or John 3.16. God loves not our sin, but he loves those who become enslaved to sin. And he loves to the extent that he would act on our behalf to rescue us out from sin and from the judgment that that sin brings upon us. It's here in John 16, John 3, 16, and verse, down through verse 20, that we read that the object of God's transcendent and glorious love is the world of men who are held captive to their own sin. And so great was his love that he gave to us the very one who could save us from our sin and to save us from the judgment that we deserve. If God did not love us in such a way, we would be justly bound to be condemned by God and to be condemned by God for all of eternity. This means that sinful men are the undeserving objects of God's love. And this brings us to the expression of his love. The expression of his love. How did God express his love? If not in his son. Jesus Christ is the expression of that love. And this is why the reference here is to that which is the only begotten of God. This is one reason that scholars believe that beginning in verse 16, this is John now writing, because John is the only one that refers to Jesus as the only begotten. Jesus never uses that as a reference to himself unless it is Jesus speaking these words here. The only begotten of God lets us know that Jesus Christ is the only Savior sent by God to be the Savior of men. No other Savior is acceptable because no other is the only begotten of God. Remember back when you're looking at chapter 1 and verse 14 where John writes of the only begotten of God. It's a reference to the uniqueness that he's one of a kind. And we see this clearly from John's gospel in chapter 1 in that prologue as Jesus is introduced to us as the God, the creator, that became man. He's the unique one. No other like him. He is the second person of the triune Godhead. In addition, throughout John's gospel, the father's love for his son is repeatedly affirmed. There is a uniqueness in the bond between father and son, a uniqueness of love. And given the uniqueness of the love relationship between the Father and the Son, what God then gave 
to this world out of his love is a gift of the greatest worth. There could be nothing more valuable to give than God's unique son. And where we read that God gave, it does not mean that God gave his son to pop down for a visit and to heal some sick people, minister to troubled lives, and do some humanitarian causes. What John 3.16 means is that God's love was to the extent that he would give his son over to death as a payment for our sins. The Apostle John would later write of this in 1 John chapter 4 as was read to us at the opening of our service. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I think of all of the theological words, propitiation is one of my favorite. Partly because it's fun to say. But have you ever stopped to think about propitiation? It's a declaration that because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, God is no longer angry with me. There's no more condemnation. It means that my sins have been completely forgiven, washed away, and I stand before God right now, pure and clean in His eyes, and I have fellowship with Him. And when I enter into His heavenly presence, I will be fit to be there. Because my sin, my life has been propitiated. The wrath of God done away with. And He is satisfied with me. And yet I continue to sin. And His blood, the blood of His Son, continues to wash and cleanse. Do you realize the importance of that? Propitiation. That's worthy of our praise. Our thanksgiving. In both the uniqueness of the sonship of Christ to the Father and in the perfect love that exists between Father and Son, God's gift tells us the story of His love. God's love is perfect. It's immense. And we know so because He expressed His love towards us in giving to us Jesus who's made full satisfaction for our sins on the cross. So we see something here in John 3.16 of the measure of God's love in the cross itself. The object of that love being the world of sinful men. The expression of that love being in the Son Himself. And that brings us to the accomplishment of His love. Which speaks of the eternal. And what I mean by the eternal is articulated here at the end of John 3.16. That whoever believes in Him shall not perish but will have eternal life. What that is telling me is that the eternal that I deserve to perish, I do not get. And what I did not deserve, the eternal in the presence of God, eternal life in the glory of God, that I will receive. That's what God intended to accomplish. We heard again in the Sunday school how there are those that preach Jesus wants us healthy, wealthy, and wise in this life. And again, it misses the point of the gospel, doesn't it? Why did Christ come? Why did God love sinners? Why did He, why did he do all of this redemption work through His Son? It was to accomplish something. To deliver me and you as believers out of the judgment that we so deserve because of our sins and to place us in His presence to enjoy eternal life with Him. It would have been one thing if God's love, or God in His love, had written us a wonderful greeting card. And in a way, He did with the Bible. A wonderful greeting card that sends a word to us that says, I love you. I'm happy with you. We kind of do this on Valentine's Day. Husbands and wives and Boyfriends, girlfriends, we send greeting cards that say, I love you, and we scratch out little messages, and there's some little poem on the card, and little pictures, and it's an expression of love. But you realize, if God had done that, to send us that kind of message, it would have been a wonderful thing, but it would have been nothing more than a warm sentiment if it had not changed the eternal. God in His love not only expressed his sentiment toward us when he said, I love you, 
but he proved that love by acting on our behalf. God's love is more than a mere expressed sentiment. This is especially true in regard to the plight of the world in hearing such a sentimental love. We're in a world of sin, sin that has left us dead to God. It's left us as at enmity with God, facing eternity, an eternity of torment and suffering. Yet because God loves sinners, he did more than say, I love you. He expressed his love by giving his son to die on a cross, bearing the sin and shame of his people and paying the full price of their sin. And those who believe in God's Son and His work of redemption, it says, shall not perish and will have instead eternal life. God's love is a love that has acted in such a way as to take us out of the very worst of eternal circumstances and has placed us in the most glorious of eternal positions. I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way. But his love has taken us out of the very worst future we could possibly imagine. And it's placed us in the most glorious. Paul again speaks of this so well in Ephesians chapter 2. I invite you to see these words with me, although you know them very well. It tells us that God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in our transgressions. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him. With Christ. And seated us with him. With Christ. In the heavenly places. In Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come. He might show the surpassing riches. Of his grace and kindness. Toward us. In Christ. I think the picture is clear enough. We once were dead to God and we were bound for eternal condemnation. God expressed the great love that he has for us in sending his son to provide our salvation, a salvation that we may wonder about. What does this mean for us? We have snapshots in God's word of what heaven will look like, what eternity is going to be like. Streets of gold, the jewels in the wall, the river flowing to us, the river of life. And those are very picturesque. But what does it mean to actually live in the eternal in the presence of God? The moment we believe, Paul says, we are seated with Christ positionally. In other words, heaven is ours. It belongs to us. But we don't see the full glory of that heavenly position any more fully than we see the wretchedness of perishing for eternity without Christ. Again, the scripture gives to us a dreadful picture of what that looks like, that eternal damnation and condemnation looks like. Weeping, gnashing of teeth, fire, pain, discomfort, a lack of rest. But that's all we get. Imagine what it would look like if we fully saw eternal condemnation and the judgment of God. What about then this eternal inheritance that Paul is writing about in Ephesians 2. Well, this much we can know. Wherever God's Son is seated, whatever glory God the Father has given to His Son in that realm, and the honor that He has bestowed on His Son, that is where we will be as believers. And that is what they will share. Believers will share with the Son of God. If it's granted to the only begotten Son of God by the Father, which is the highest and richest honor that can be given, then you can be assured that we will not be disappointed if we're seated next to Him. We can't be disappointed. Because this is what God has given to the Son He would honor. God's love to us in Christ has taken us from eternally perishing from His Son to eternally living with his son. And what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross for us was everything needed to make that so. For all who are believers, our sins are completely forgiven. There is no condemnation. Christ received our judgment so that we face none. Eternity and holy fellowship with God is established that we might forever live in God's presence without fear and surrounded by the riches of God's grace and kindness. This will be ours forever. If you're a believer here in Christ this morning, it's yours forever.
Now, just by way of summary, as we look at God's love, the measure of God's love for this world is that he would give his own son to die for sinners. It's a view of the cross. The object of God's love is that God has taken out of this world from every people, tribe, and tongue, and nation, those that were enslaved to sin and faced his judgment, and he's poured out his love on them to deliver them. This is a judgment that all men and women deserve, and yet he sends his son to this world. What they do not deserve, the salvation of his son, by grace you have been saved. The objects of his redeeming love are those who believe in his son. And the expression of God's love is the only begotten son, Jesus Christ. The depth of this love is seen not only in the value of God's son, but in the greatness of the sacrifice that Jesus would perform for us on a cross. That God would give to sinners his son, mean that his son would suffer and die to pay the penalty, the price for our sins. And what that accomplished out of God's love is that sinners who believe are rescued from perishing under eternal judgment and they are granted eternal life in his glory and in his presence instead of that judgment. And this brings us to verse 17. The gift our final thought for this morning comes from this passage that speaks of the, or describes the gift of God. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but the world might be saved through Him. It is also important that we consider the weight of God's gift that's described here. We are assured in this verse that when God gave His Son to us in Bethlehem, that God did not send Him into the world to bring judgment. What a blessing that is. Because God had every right to send His Son into this world to do that very thing. To judge us. Because we deserved His judgment. God had every right to send His Son to this world to bring His righteous judgment against a fallen and wicked humanity and to utterly wipe us off the face of the earth. Had God done so, had God, had God sent His Son to do that, would be what we deserve. He had a right to do this. Instead, because of his love, God sent his son into the world to save and to rescue. And this salvation rescues believers in the world from God himself and the judgment that his holy character is compelled to bring against man's sin. This verse addresses a matter of confusion that men have brought into John 3.16. Though verse 16 teaches that those who believe will be saved, verse 17 re-emphasizes that the world is saved through Christ. In other words, the whole of the world is not saved because Jesus died on a cross for man's sins. This is a message called universalism. And it teaches that because God loved and God sent His Son, that everybody is saved regardless what they believe, or what they do not believe. And in that deceptive message, it is suggested that no matter what you believe or not believe, no matter how you live, all men and women will have eternal life in the end because God is love. But John 3.16 does not use the word world in that sense. And this is rather obvious from verses 18 to 19, where unbelievers are still under judgment. Another example of the word world used in this way, you can see from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19 where Paul said God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Now in saying that or in using the word world in that way, Paul is not saying that all men have been reconciled because in the very next verse, he's appealing to sinners and begging the world to be reconciled to God through Christ. There would be no point in evangelism there would be no point in Paul's instruction on being an ambassador for Christ if all the world was saved because of the cross. No, that's not what the gospel teaches. It's those who believe that are rescued. And those that do not believe are still under the judgment of God. And we're going to see this more in our next study. So the cross does not rescue the world from the judgment that is to come against men and their sin. 
The cross rescues only sinners who believe in him. So there's two essentials, and I put this on your note sheet, two essential components to God's salvation. Number one, sinners must believe. There must be faith. Sinners must believe. And number two, sinners must believe in Christ. It's not enough to say you've got faith. It is faith in the Son of God alone that saves. These are the very things that Jesus exposed in the heart of Nicodemus. He did not understand God's salvation plan from Scripture. He did not accept the testimony of God's Son. And therefore, he did not believe so as to be saved, at least not at this point in John chapter 3. And this is why Nicodemus, like all men, must be born again until the Spirit of Christ activates the heart by giving spiritual life Man simply will not see the kingdom of God in a saving way. And if devout men like Nicodemus cannot enter the kingdom of God without this regeneration, no other religion, no other belief, no other savior will be of any help. We observe that God's salvation is only through him, through Christ, through the only begotten son of God. To most people in our world, They're not going to understand this, nor will they accept it. And most people in our world do not understand this because they do not know God's love for the world. They don't understand that. In fact, they protest this love as unacceptable because they would prefer to have many ways to God. That's love in their eyes. They prefer to come up with their own way to God. Here's a statement that I would like you to see from R.C. Sproul. Are you one who gets angry when you hear there is only one way to God? And in many respects, our world is angry about that. They don't like to hear that Christianity is the only way to God. Are you angry when you hear that there's only one way to God? The question is not why is there only one way, but why is there even one way? Why did God provide the one way in his son? Could you answer that this morning? because of God's love. And that love is marked by his graciousness. We did not deserve this. His love is unmerited. There is only one way because in God's perfect love for the world, he knows that only he can provide the way of salvation. Man can't provide that for himself. No other savior, not Muhammad, not Confucius, not the angel Moroni. It can only be the son of God. And God knows that. And therefore, out of love, out of grace, He speaks the truth to us. Out of love, He provides the only means that could possibly rescue and save. He did not send His Son into this world to judge, though we deserved it. But His Son was given as the only Savior that could possibly accomplish man's eternal rescue. And only those who believe in that Son of God will not perish but will have life eternal. God's love is an act of His grace. There are some passages in God's Word that are decidedly evangelistic. All of Scripture should point us to Christ. All of Scripture should point us to the Gospel. But there are some passages like John 3 that compel the heart and mind to understand the salvation of Christ that we might believe and be saved. And it's our hope that each of us that hear this message today have been born again as believers are being drawn by the Spirit to believe in Christ. And with that this morning, I want to leave you with a couple of very obvious points from our text. And I hope you will see this as we close this morning. Number one, salvation is provided because God loves the world. That much is to be understood. This is a love that did not merely express itself in words, but in actions that effectively rescues men from God's judgment. We deserve that judgment. We don't deserve His love. God's love for us is an act of His grace. As John said, not that we loved Him, but rather He loved us. We love Him because He first loved us. God did not love us because we were lovable. He loved us in our sin, in spite of our sin. And God's love for us is an act of His grace. It's a love that we don't deserve. 
And we've not earned it, nor could we ever earn it. But salvation has come to us because God loves sinners. Second, salvation is provided only through faith and only through faith in God's Son. There is no other Savior. In preaching this message, Christians are not trying to market their own exclusive religious viewpoints. But friends, it's the only plan of salvation that actually rescues the souls of men in eternity. It's the only plan that will keep us from perishing as sinners. It is God's plan of redemption, conceived in His heart, designed by Him to satisfy His perfect terms of justice. Nothing else will propitiate His wrath against our sin, but His plan, because He is the only one that must be satisfied. God alone is the one to be satisfied. And therefore, He alone has provided the means of salvation. And third, salvation is provided so that sinners who believe will not perish under God's judgment as they deserve, but will have eternal life. It must be understood that all men will not be saved. All will perish as they deserve, except those who trust in Christ. These believing ones will not perish as the others but will be granted eternal life through faith in the only begotten Son of God. This is the gospel we take to the world. The world at large will think this is a harsh and unloving message. But you and I know there is nothing more loving that we can do than to tell them the truth. And that's what our God has done for us. In His love, He told us the truth. He dealt with the truth. And he sufficiently supplied us with a salvation in truth, what we needed the most in his son, Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, as your people, our hearts at this moment are given to praise and thanksgiving. Of all people on the planet, we know we did not deserve your love and your mercy. We don't deserve your son. We don't deserve the pain and the suffering that he suffered for us on a cross. But Father, we plead by faith in Christ that now we are yours. And we glory in that truth. We praise you. We give thanks to you for that wonderful truth. Thank you, Father, for providing this plan of love to redeem us. Thank you, Jesus, for stepping out of glory, taking on our humanity and suffering as you did and bearing our curse, our sin and satisfying the demands of your Father. Thank you, Spirit, for breathing new life into us, causing us to be born again, gifting us with faith that we might believe so that we would not perish as your people, but we will enjoy instead eternal life in your glory in your majesty, and in your presence. And we pray these things thankfully in Christ's name. Amen.